Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Sunday, September the 10th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this episode, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We will have dispatches on a devastating earthquake in the North African state of the Kingdom of Morocco, where over 2,000 people have been reportedly killed. Niger in West Africa has accused France of amassing troops in neighboring West African states to intervene militarily in an effort to reimpose Western-backed ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. A drone attack in Khartoum, Sudan, has killed 40 people, and the Russian Feder- uh, Federation's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is pleased uh, with the concluding statement of the G20 summit in India. In the second hour, we listened to an interview with South African Foreign Minister Nalidi Pandor, who attended the G20 summit in New Delhi. Finally, we examine the impact of the recently held Africa Climate Summit uh, 2023, uh, which was hosted uh, by uh, the Republic of Kenya. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude with Tony Allen from the album entitled Black Voices.
Thank you. 
Thank you. 
Welcome back. And that was uh, Tony Allen uh, from the album entitled Black Voices. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for this Sunday evening, uh, September the 10th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we're going to move into our regular Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story deals with the horrendous humanitarian and environmental crisis uh, in the Kingdom of Morocco in North Africa. An aftershock uh, rattled Moroccans uh, earlier today as they mourned victims of the nation's strongest earthquake in more than a century and sought uh, to rescue survivors while soldiers and aid workers raced to reach ruined mountain villages. The disaster killed more than 2,100 people, a number that is expected to rise. The United Nations estimated that 300,000 people were affected uh, by Friday evening. The magnitude was 6.8, and some Moroccans complained on social networks that the government wasn't allowing more outside help. International aid crews were poised to deploy, but some grew frustrated waiting for the government to officially request assistance. We know uh, there is a great urgency to save people and dig under the remains of buildings, said Arnaud Faisi, uh, founder of the Rescuers Without Borders, who had a team stuck in Paris uh, waiting for the green light. There are people dying under the rubble, and we cannot do anything to save them. Help was slow to arrive in Amadmez, uh, where a whole chunk of the town of orange and red sandstone brick homes carved into a mountainside appeared to be missing. A mosque a minaret uh, had collapsed. It's a catastrophe, said villager Salah Anchui. 28 years old. We don't know what the future is. The aid remains insufficient. Residents uh, swept rubble off the main unpaved road into town, and people cheered when the trucks full of soldiers arrived, but they pleaded for more help. You can read more on the situation in Morocco over the Pan-African Newswire. In West Africa, Niger's new military leaders have accused France of amassing forces for a possible military intervention in the country following uh, the coup, uh, which took place on July 26. French President Emmanuel Macron uh, said earlier today that he would only take action at the demand of the opposed Nigerian leader, Mohamed Bazoum. Niger's Junta spokesperson, uh, Major Amadou Abdurrahmani, uh, said that France is also considering collaborating in such an intervention with the economic community of West African states, a regional bloc uh, known as ECOWAS. France continues to deploy its forces in several ECOWAS countries as part of preparations for an aggressive action against uh, Niger. Adramani uh, said uh, late Saturday evening in a statement broadcast on state television. Macron said he wouldn't directly respond to the junta's claim when asked about it after the group of 20 summit if we redeploy anything it will only be at the demand of bazoom and in coordination with him not with those people who are holding a president hostage uh, macron said macron however added that france quote fully unquote supports the position of ECOWAS, which has said it's considering a military intervention as an option to reinstate bazoom as president 
You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, uh, the head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, voiced strong opposition to the African Union's interference in Sudanese affairs and its attempt to impose this vision for peace uh, on, uh, in the country. He said this on Saturday. Also, he recalled, he called on the organization to correct the position of his staff members. The military-led government accuses the African Union of double standards after suspending Sudan's membership following the October 25, 2021 coup. Additionally, the Sudanese foreign ministry criticized the reception of a representative of the rapid support forces by the chairperson of the African Union Commission. An aide of the AUC chairperson on Thursday triggered an additional crisis by using tough terms against the de facto government. The move increased tensions between Sudan and the regional organization, which wants to play a role in the resolution of the Sudanese crisis. And finally, uh, Russia cannot be excluded from the grain deal as it is fraught with the growth of tension in the region. That's according to the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He said this uh, earlier today after the Group of 20 summit, uh, which met in New Delhi, India. I have an opportunity at the summit uh, to discuss in detail the grain deal. The deal made it possible to avoid a food crisis in the world. As you know, it was extended three times. 33 million tons of grain were supplied over this time. The process without Russia will unlikely be sustainable. Uh, Russia cannot be excluded from the grain process. There must not be any attempt to whip up tensions in the region, he said. On July 17th, uh, Russia refused to continue its participation in the grain deal, which was reached uh, a year ago to ensure safe exports of the Ukrainian grain across the Black Sea. The deal also provided for creating conditions for exporting farming products and fertilizer from Russia. Moscow explained this withdrawal from the deal by the non-implementation of the part of the deal related to Russia's exports to the global market. Apart from that, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin repeatedly pointed to the fact that most of the grain from Ukraine had been shipped to European countries, whereas under the deal, it was to go to the poorest countries. Nevertheless, Moscow said that it was ready to resume its participation in the deal only when all obligations concerning Russia were implemented. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding... Um, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December, Sunday, uh, September 10th, uh, 2023. 
All you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. September 10th, uh, 2023, uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and the G20, Group of 20, just met uh, during the course of uh, the last past week uh, in New Delhi, India. Right now, we have an interview uh, with uh, the South African Foreign Minister, Nalidi Pandor, and also uh, Brazilian President uh, Lula da Silva, who is the new host for uh, the next Group of 20 uh, meeting, which is scheduled to take place in Brazil next year. Let's listen uh, to these interviews. 
Hello and welcome to this very special interview. With me today is the Foreign Minister of South Africa, Dr. Grace Naledi Pandor. Madam Minister, welcome to First Post. Good afternoon and thank you very much for this opportunity. How are you doing? How do you like New Delhi and how's your experience of the G20 summit in New Delhi been so far? Well, the stay in New Delhi has been wonderful and uh, the arrangements uh, by the leadership of uh, India have been really excellent. Uh, the deliberations have been very, very good, very focused. The themes have been addressed. So I think all in all, this is a great triumph for India. What was the highlight of the last two days uh, for you? Well, I think, first of all, the fact that uh, much of the deliberations had uh, consensus uh, shaping them, which I think has been very important uh, because in the last two years, uh, we've seen a great fracture in the global community uh, with us almost being uh, divided uh, given the conflict between Russia uh, and Ukraine and seeming to be compelled to make a choice uh, uh, between the two which as part of the developing community we felt uh, uh, we couldn't make such a choice. Our choice is for peace. It's for bringing countries together. And so to choose one uh, in a conflict appeared to uh, take a side for greater insecurity. And we were not comfortable with that. And I think the uh, character of this G20 has been to bring us back on the core focus uh, that has always been the subject of the G20, which is development and particularly looking at economic growth for emerging and developing countries. Would you give credit to India's presidency for that? Uh, to I think it's been really difficult, but India carried it extremely well. Uh, credit to the Sherpa, credit to the Foreign Minister, and credit to His Excellency the Prime Minister. Do you think that in a way the Global South, you say that we, we don't have we don't have to make this choice. This is not a choice that developing nations should be forced to make. Um, and by prevailing upon, in a way, the G7 and the European Union and making sure that Ukraine does not hijack the agenda of the G20, uh, the Global South has, has saved the G20. It's an organ it's, it's, it was a grouping that was fading into irrelevance, some said, and, and the outcomes of this G20 have shown that there is so much more that it can achieve. Well, um, as I said, there was a loss of traction in that uh, we tended to be focused much more on the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine, whereas what the G20 uh, unusually does is bring the developed and the developing countries together in a common forum where we should be discussing the world, the community and its advance. Uh, and what this meeting has done is take us uh, uh, back there without detracting from the important need to address the matters of peace and security that arise uh, from this conflict. So we didn't neglect the focus on that. I think it is the responsibility of the international community to be concerned when two countries are in conflict, uh, but it can't be the full substance of what the world deliberates upon. We can't marginalize the poor. Uh, we cannot marginalize uh, many regions on the African continent that have conflict. You know, so all issues of peace and security 
should be of concern uh, uh, to the G20. And I think uh, the fact that we brought back, through India's leadership, uh, issues of development, uh, gender, uh, a focus on persons with special needs, uh, really addressing in a very, very, uh, I think, candid manner, uh, the issues of uh, climate change and the responsibility uh, that the developed world bears to ensure that given that it has led to much of uh, the difficulties we face with uh, climate change through the emissions arising from their uh, industrialization, um, that they have a responsibility to support the developing world uh, to respond uh, to the effects of climate change. So. I, I felt we were right-sizing uh, the G20 through uh, the summit. It was said post the, the adoption of the Delhi Declaration that uh, countries like South Africa were instrumental in uh, forging this consensus. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the conversation was like, what kind of resistance did you face, and how was this con consensus achieved, which came at the very last minute, we understand? I think credit must go to the Sherpa of India. Uh, who played a very important role, but uh, what happened in the context of discussing uh, a range of issues, uh, that old family that we have, which we often don't talk about, which is India, Brazil, South Africa, or IPSA, as we call it, came together uh, and played, I think, a, a complementary role in uh, bringing uh, forth uh, a range of uh, possible compromises, changes in wording, appreciation uh, for returning to the development focus that is so much the characteristic uh, of, of G20, but also stressing the three of them um, that we would like to emerge from this summit giving the world a sense of hope, giving the people of the world uh, the uh, fact that in our deliberations we've gone back to the issues they're most concerned about. And I think this is what uh, India, Brazil and South Africa managed to do as Sherpas, is to give leadership in really bringing us to uh, deliberate upon those matters that really are of concern to the majority of the world. So are you happy with the outcome with the Delhi Declaration? Because Ukraine says the joint statement, and I'm quoting, the joint statement is nothing to be proud of. Well, Ukraine has insisted uh, uh, always uh, that there should be respect for the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, this is within the Declaration. Uh, that sovereignty of states, uh, territorial integrity, um, and encouraging uh, states to respect multilateral institutions and their decision-making power. All of this is within uh, uh, the Declaration. So I believe it uh, addresses the thorny issues as well as the commonality uh, uh, that we have. Kiev has also said that had they been invited to the G20, they would have been able to impress upon uh, the, the delegates and the members uh, the, the, the reality of the situation and it would have helped their understanding of what was happening in the war. Uh, do you think Ukraine should have been invited to the G20? Ukraine is uh, not a member of the G20 and it's not been the practice to invite uh, you know, external uh, countries to come to the G20 and almost make a submission. Uh, 
Um, we are very pleased that the African Union has become a permanent uh, part and again we credit and thank India for that decision uh, having been made but uh, I don't think um, that it would be appropriate to have a situation where one country that has a conflict then believes it should be invited uh, should we be inviting Mozambique which has got terrorists attacks should we be inviting Mali which has had a coup or uh, Burkina Faso if we don't invite them why is it because they're African and so the conflicts they experience don't matter so I think we have to be very measured uh, in how we approach uh, international organizations and participation within them you spoke about the inclusion of the African Union was there any resistance to that? How did that conversation uh, evolve? Well, happily, no, there wasn't. Uh, it has been discussed uh, for more than two and a half years. And I think finally a decision uh, was taken. Uh, Minister Jay Shankar has been very supportive and has always asserted the need uh, to have the African Union uh, present. And in the uh, BRICS uh, summit, uh, in South Africa just last month, uh, Prime Minister Modi indicated uh, that as far as India is concerned, it actually is good sense to have the African Union as a permanent member and they would be dealing with this matter at the G20 summit. And so it has happened. The BRICS has more African members now. The African Union has been uh, inducted in the G20 uh, as a full-fledged member. Do you think Africa is finally getting its voice uh, and, and its uh, rightful place on global platforms? Well, certainly it's beginning to happen. But of course, we've got the, the bigger one. I suppose we're eating an elephant one piece at a time uh, because the really big one is the reform of the UN and particularly addressing uh, the UN Security Council and the absence of emerging powers of the world. China, uh, India, Brazil are uh, absent Africa. Uh, Africa is now decolonized, uh, largely free and independent, but we have uh, a non-permanent presence on the Security Council. India is not a permanent member. Uh, and it just, you know, for the most populous country in the world, not to be represented in a body of such importance really speaks to the need for reform. So I think the changes that are occurring are important, but the large prize is the premier multilateral institution, the United Nations and its reform. It seems the only impediment to India's inclusion as a permanent member to the UNSC is China. Do you, in your deliberations with the Chinese leadership, uh, uh, push for, for a change here? I don't think there's an objection from China. We discussed this matter, and it's in our BRICS declaration, uh, that countries such as India and Brazil and African countries such as South Africa, although we don't choose ourselves, um, should have a, a representation. And China's on board? On the, uh, China's part of the declaration of BRICS. So uh, there's been no objection in our meetings uh, to India having a presence on the Security Council. So what is Certainly the roadblock? Certainly not from China. What is the roadblock then? Why is it, if everyone agrees? The roadblock is uh, when you introduce the subject of reform, uh, others who are not part of the permanent presence of the Security Council assert 
their interests. So they piggyback on uh, developing countries. So you'd have uh, Germany, you'd have Japan, you know. And so it muddies the water. And you need to be firm in indicating that what we're talking about is a representation of the excluded and not the increased presence of rich and developed countries. Let's talk about BRICS expansion. There were 40 applicants um, and six new members. Is this the right direction for BRICS? Is it evolving into an anti-West China-led bloc? No, certainly not anti-West. Uh, we'd be ridiculous. Uh, the West is an important trading partner for many of us uh, in the BRICS uh, family. So certainly no anti-West, but certainly pro-South. Uh, we're a very positive forum uh, which looks at the world uh, in a manner that seeks to advance uh, the interests of the South. We're not against anyone. We never have a discussion about disliking a particular country. All our discussions are toward uh, change uh, and development. So we're a progressive uh, forum. So we would discuss uh, that uh, we must respect uh, the need to respond to the effects of climate change. So we don't say there isn't such a thing as climate change. We're very scientific. Uh, but then we also say that uh, in addressing, we need assistance. And the entire developing world would require assistance. And that assistance really is honoring the financial commitments uh, that rich countries have made over many years. Uh, so for me, BRICS is a very progressive body, uh, and we seek uh, to have greater uh, articulation of progressive voices from the South. The French president wanted to attend the BRICS summit in South Africa. Why did you not invite him? We didn't think that uh, there was really uh, a theme or place for him in our deliberations and we had a great deal of business uh, to get through. Uh, the uh, interest came uh, rather late and uh, the members fortunately of BRICS, our practice is uh, we decide matters on consensus. So the chair, President Ramaphosa, consulted all his colleagues and there wasn't any sense uh, that all five wished to have uh, the president of France there. Yesterday we saw the India, uh, the, the, the United States, India, South Africa and Brazil coming together, talking about, uh, you know, reaffirming their commitment to the G20, talking about building more multilater multilateral banks and so on. Um, do you think that some Western powers have begun to see BRICS as a, as a space that they want to be part of? Is, is I get the sense that they would like to talk more to the BRICS leaders and being here in India gave them uh, the opportunity to uh, really have uh, detailed deliberations with Prime Minister Modi as well as with President Lula da Silva. So they found the BRICS membership here and were able, I think, uh, uh, to have a, a greater engagement. Um, and I think that that's important because um, BRICS is significant. It's a large part of the population of the world, significant GDP of the world, so it can't be uh, ignored. And the fact that uh, you had very civil uh, discussions among uh, the various leaders, I think is a good sign.
There's been a lot of talk about uh, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, who traveled all the way to South Africa for the BRICS summit, but chose not to come to New Delhi for the G20. Uh, was his absence disappointing for you? Do you think it was a missed opportunity for China at a time when their economy is going through uh, a rather difficult phase? I really uh, don't believe I'm competent to comment on uh, the President of China's uh, attendance. Uh, many leaders miss uh, many meetings and uh, I, I really think we should leave it at that. I was very pleased uh, in South Africa to observe uh, President Xi and Prime Minister Modi having quite detailed discussion together. And I think that's good because we need to challenge this notion uh, that India and China at loggerheads. They're very significant parts of the economy of the world. And uh, it's important that we see them working together. Can you tell us more about the interactions between Prime Minister Modi and President Xi uh, in South Africa? Unfortunately, I couldn't bring my ear close, uh, but I did see them spending quite a longest time together on more than one occasion. And I think, you know, that gave a great deal of positive feeling uh, to the BRICS summit. Uh, because as I say, these are extremely important countries. And uh, the closer we in the South work together, and in particular, the closer that the most powerful in the South are, the better it is to be a catalyst to the rest of us. So for me, uh, these are two very powerful leaders and uh, I believe they must give an ethos uh, to the community of the South that says we work in cooperation and it is through cooperation that we advance. China is Africa's biggest bilateral lender. It's now been called the lender of the first resort. Uh, $73 billion of uh, debt in Africa is owed to China. Countries like Zambia are collapsing under Chinese debt. Uh, is that uh, a point of concern for South Africa? And are you uh, making the same bet that landed other developing nations in trouble? Well, um, I, Zambia is not collapsing. I think they had to make uh, new arrangements with, through the IMF. I don't think uh, the debt was in solely China. Uh, there were other debtors. Um, and China engaged, uh, as the Zambian president said, I was in the room uh, very positively uh, with them, uh, Zambia, to assist them uh, in arranging a new uh, debt payment uh, 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 plan. So it seems they've had very good discussions and are now at a point where these matters are being resolved. I think there's been a popular attempt uh, in the public media uh, to create an impression uh, that China owns uh, the continent. And I think it's, it's really wrong uh, because there are many people uh, you know, to whom uh, money is owed by many different African countries. Uh, many of them are in debt to the World Bank, to the IMF, to other international uh, development finance institutions. But because there's this intention uh, to present China as some form, you know, of monster eating up the African continent, uh, you get these, uh, you know, You're not stories. concerned about Chinese uh, debt? Not, not with my country, no, because our debt tends to be local uh, much more than uh, uh, international. But I am worried about uh, this Story. I, I saw recently a challenge uh, to the story that uh, 
or the debt of Africa or the worst debt is of China. It's actually challenged by some economists. So I would like to see the media probing this issue uh, much more than just accepting the popular notion. We want to know about the chemistry that President Ramaphosa shares with uh, Prime Minister Modi. I think they have a lovely chemistry. Uh, we were so thrilled that Prime Minister came uh, to the BRICS summit. And, uh, you know, a lot of our people want him to come back. So we have invited uh, that he should come for an official visit uh, to South Africa. We had uh, some of our citizens, as you know, South Africa has uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, Indian originating population on the African continent. And uh, the citizens from Durban, a large city with many of our Indian compatriots, had traveled all the way to Johannesburg and stood outside the venue of the summit just to see Prime Minister Modi. So uh, there's a great deal of interest in him and uh, we would like to, him to spend more time in South Africa. Dr. Pandora, I understand you have to leave. Thank you so much for your time you. and for Thank sharing you for your thoughts with us. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to this very special interview with me is uh, the President of Brazil, Mr. Lula da Silva. President da Silva, welcome to First Post. Good evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here talking with the Indian TV viewer, and I hope that we're going to have a great interview. We look forward to it, Mr. President. Uh, how's your visit to New Delhi going so far, and how has the first day of the G20 summit been for you? Well, actually, this G20 is a G20 that is exceptionally very well organized. We had, I would say, a lot of work. I arrived last night, and today we had two sessions that were hard work, and we had other, some other parallel events that were also very important. We launched a commitment together with uh, Prime Minister Modi and President Biden with Argentina, with the Indonesia uh, commitment to follow a biofuel policy that is very strong so that we can fight the greenhouse gas effect so that we can diminish the use of oil and try to use biofuel. So that was very important, this initiative, this commitment that was assumed by all the presidents that participated together with Prime Minister Modi. And so I am convinced that we will come out of this meeting with some guidelines where the countries will, what would they have to do from here onwards so that we can diminish the inequality between the peoples, inequality amongst the countries so that the world could have lived in a better way and above all so that we can confront the climate issue with great responsibility. It's not any a joke what's happening on with the climate change around the world. If someone still has doubts that the climate, nothing will happen with the climate, I can reassure you that the most certain thing that exists today is that we are lacking with responsibility when we deal with the climate change and we're being the victim of the lack of attention of humanity. The rulers lacked responsibility in dealing 
in an effective way to avoid that the planet will warm up, that we will lose the control of these floods, and there's nothing to do. We still have time. We have to take care of the planet. I believe that this meeting will give a very good guideline to all countries so that we can manage to put in practice a good policy so that we can take care with great care of our planet Earth, of its, their forests, of its water, so that we can live well. Mr. President, it's very, very good to see a world leader like you speak so passionately about climate, uh, and we, we hope to see more leaders put it at, at the center of their policy making. I understand that India has been also uh, pushing for climate action that is uh, just uh, that, that does justice to the whole world, developing and developed. We've had some 200 meetings over the past few months uh, in 60 Indian cities. What do you make of the progress that has been made so far and what do you make of India's agenda? I think it was an extraordinary, the India agenda that they developed and the promotion of uh, 60 debates or more in different cities uh, in Brazil, many ministers came to these meetings. We had the health minister, we had the mines and energy minister from Brazil, we had the science and technology minister, the enormous amount, uh, the labor minister came here, and the, the finance minister came to these meetings. So these hundreds of meetings that you involving thousands of people is a new way that India is teaching to us that it's not surface for the presidents of the countries to participate. It's necessary for us to involve the government as a whole and that we should involve the people that should participate in the debate. We learned a lot. And since we're going to host next year the G20 in Brazil, we will take from India many teachings and so that we can have a G20 meeting as productive as we had here in India. One of the big headlines today is uh, the Delhi Declaration. We understand that there is finally consensus. We've seen uh, the draft of the Declaration and all leaders have agreed. There was a fear that the war in Ukraine might hijack the agenda. Uh, and in the statements that followed since, uh, it was said that Brazil, South Africa and Indonesia helped forge consensus. Can you tell us a little more about the conversation that went in and how did Brazil contribute? Well, the G20 is a forum that was built because of the 2008 and 9 global financial crisis. From there onwards, the G20 started to discuss many economic issues, and the Bretton Woods institutions were also started to be discussed, the World Bank, the IMF, in an attempt to try to improve the functioning of these multilateral institute. That's why we didn't want to, here in India, we would discuss the war between Ukraine and Russia. This is not the appropriate forum for that. On the 19th of September of this month, we will have the General Assembly of the UN, and that's the place for us to discuss the war. That's the place for us to try to discuss peace. That's the place for us to call Putin and Zelensky in a negotiation table, and because no one wants war. Everybody is against war. We want peace. So it's necessary for us to establish a conversation policy so that we can try to convince the two presidents for Russia and Ukraine that the war is not the solution for anything and that the dialogue, the diplomacy and a table of dialogue could help much more. From the beginning, Brazil has been saying that we do not want to participate in the war efforts. Brazil wants to participate in the peace effort. We want to try to negotiate as also India thinks like that, China thinks like that. Many other countries think like Brazil. 
Brazil. And so that's why we believe that it's very important so that the war issue should not uh, be included in the, the document in the declaration from the G20. That's very important. Otherwise, people go to war and then we lose and waste time instead of discussing the problems that involve 9 billion inhabitants, the hunger that is affecting 735 million people, unemployment of millions of people. And we stay here discussing something that is not our top priority. And so I believe that it was very important, the decision that was made not to allow that the war would come in into our declaration. And the, the declaration is very serious-minded. The, 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 it's a mandatory reading for all of us that participated in the G20, and I hope that it serves as a guideline, as a roadmap, so that we can in Rio next year to do something even better. Now we have to start to go to actual policies. Now we're going to go to a phase that G20 doesn't have to stay anymore just discussing and philosophy. And No, we have to take commitments to make things change, to do things. The climate change issue is very serious. Mind we have to do something about it. And Brazil is taking the commitment of reaching 2030 with zero deforestation. And we have already ended hunger in Brazil once in the past. And now we have 33 million that are in hunger once again. And so we're going to end the hunger in Brazil again. And to end with hunger in Brazil, we have to create jobs. The economy has to grow. The poor has to come into the national budget of the different countries. When the government starts building its budget to know how much money the government is going to spend, they have to include the poor in that budget in government spending. The poor has to be included in the government budget because no one wants to include the poor. Now, in the moment that you put the poor in the budget, you start to diminish the poverty because you know what happens when the poor receives a benefit. He receives a benefit, and he's not going to buy dollar. He's not going to keep that money. He's going to buy things. He's going to buy new clothes for his children. He's going to buy um, school material for the kids. So that means that the wheel of the economy starts working, and this is what we're going to have to do from here onwards. We're going to have to make the economy move forward so that we can end with the inequality and with hunger in the planet Earth. And I'm going to uh, come back to all of these points, the very important subjects that you touched upon. Uh, but I uh, also want to ask you, because until yesterday, uh, the European uh, and the G7 countries seemed intent on uh, having their way with the language vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. How did you uh, and, and others prevail upon them uh, to ensure that there was consensus uh, on, on, on the declaration? Well, this is already is a majority that is being formed within the countries. On the BRICS, for example, we didn't discuss the war during the BRICS summit meeting. We thought that there's other fora to discuss the war, and we could bring to India a debate, a discussion that has uh, quest more consequence in Europe because they're involved directly in the war, and the U.S. is also directly involved in the war. But the other countries are not involved directly in the war. The other countries are involved in uh, 
policy for peace to develop a policy. We have to talk about peace every day. So that's why we are already discussed with all the European heads of state and government. I discussed twice with President Biden. We do not want to discuss war. We want to discuss peace. When Putin and Zelensky are willing to discuss peace, then India will talk, Brazil will talk, uh, China will talk, Indonesia, Argentina, and other countries will go to peace conversations. We'll talk about peace. We have to stop the war first. And then diplomacy should come in the picture so that we can see the world living in peace. Would you say this consensus, in a way, is a win for New Delhi and it establishes India as a bridging power in an increasingly divided world? India will always be a power. It is a country that has a tremendous 1,000-year culture. It's a country that was already colonized, a country that managed to get its independence with the most extraordinary figure after Christ, which is Muhammad Gandhi. It's a country that has 1,400,000,000 inhabitants. It's a country that is the sixth largest economy in the world, a country that managed to build a cheap rocket and reach a part of the moon that not even the Russians managed and the Americans managed to go to that part of the moon. So what happened here was the result of the competence of organization of the G20 that India organized as the host country. India is always a country that you have to take it very seriously, very respected country, and I will always say that because we came here to and we established a strategic partnership between Brazil and India, and this partnership now needs to be improved so that the trade flow, uh, foreign trade flow between Brazil and India should be the size of India and the size of Brazil. It should be very big because we can do that. So we have the conditions. So what happened here was a victory of the organization and of the respectability that we all have for India. You had your first meeting with Prime Minister Modi in the month of May after your inauguration as the President of Brazil for a third term. Uh, what was your impression of him and how do you see his leadership on this global platform? The impression was very good. I had previous relations here with the former Prime Minister Singh and it was a very good relationship with Prime Minister Singh and the relationship with the Prime Minister Modi was extraordinary. The two times that I met him, he conveys a trust, a confidence that he's managing India with great seriousness for the good and the benefit of the Indian people, and this is of the interest of Brazil, is that we should have a relationship with a ruler that has responsibility with their people. I know that India is a complicated country because it has many religions, many different languages are spoken here, so to rule a country the size of India is much more complicated to, for me to govern Brazil that has 200 million inhabitants. So I believe that he has given a clear-cut demonstration of extraordinary. He was re-elected once already, and it seems that he's running again for office next year. As, with, as people talk to me, he could be re-elected again. This means that this is a recognition of the people for the work that he's developing. And 
And I remember that India was the 15th largest economy and Brazil was the 6th largest economy. Now the, India is the 6th largest and Brazil is the 12th largest economy of the world. The coup d'etat that was attempted in Brazil and an extreme right uh, rising to power made Brazil go backwards in terms of its GDP growth. Now we took office and now we're making the GDP grow again because we want Brazil to have a strong economy, a developed economy. Yes, I, I do want to come to uh, talk about Brazil's economy, but, but for now, uh, the G20 agenda, India uh, and others have been pushing for the inclusion of the Global South, and today the African Union uh, got membership of the G20, so now it is G21. How significant is this according to you? Do you think it is going to mitigate the imbalance and, and will ensure just representation of uh, developing countries on international platforms? I have been saying that 30 years ago, India and Brazil were treated as poor countries, problems more bigger than solutions for them. After that, Brazil started to be treated as third world country, and then we started to be treated as a developing country. And now we're part of the global south. That is to say, we decided to organize ourselves and to show that we want to grow, that we want our society should have a standard of living that is good, that, that should have a standard uh, health care, and with that, education. And, and so the pharmaceutical industry in India is extraordinary. We want to have a partnership with them. And so there have been many investments here in science and technology. Brazil has to learn with India with that. We have to learn with India and invest more in science and technology. So what I believe is that India is a country that is rising and I think that this is very important. As Indian managed to improve the standard of living of their people, the people starts to consume more. And when they consume more, they create more jobs. And when they create more jobs, they create more salaries. And when they create salaries, more consumption. And the gigantic wheel of the economy starts moving, and everybody starts to participate in the economy. So that's why I'm very optimistic with the growth of India, as was happy with the growth in China 20, 30 years ago when it happened. And when I'm happy when Brazil's economic growth makes me happy. Too. I was in Hiroshima, and the managing director of IMF said that Brazil would not grow this year. And then I just met her here, and I said to her, Brazil is not going to only grow, but Brazil will surprise the IMF. We're going to grow three times more than the forecast that the IMF thought that we would grow. So, my assumption is the following. A lot of money in the hands of few means wealth concentration, means impoverishment, it means growth of the absolute misery and poverty and malnutrition, hunger, it means all that. This is a lot of money in the hands of few. Now, when you have few money in the hands of many, that means income distribution, that means more jobs, more consumption, more schools, more health care. You don't have to be an economist to reach this conclusion. You have to be a humanist. You just to think with your heart. 
the ruler cannot think only with his head, with his mind. He has to have feelings, think with feelings, think with his heart, because it depends on the government to develop the opportunities for people that did not have the chance to attend schools, that did not have the opportunity to get a good job. It is the government, the state, that should, the one that should guarantee that these people should have access to what is elementary in life and that what is written in the Bible, it's written in the Constitution, it's written in the Universal Declaration of the Human Rights, and that's all in, in the written, and, and that's what the governments have to do, they have to abide to that. And so I'm very happy with the rise of India, the economic rise, and with India's participation in the International Multilateral Forum, because uh, it has an important role to play. The G20 is essentially a, a forum to discuss economic issues and China is the second largest economy in the world and the Chinese economy is not in a very good phase right now. China is also uh, increasingly isolated politically. If you were the president of China, would you skip the G20 summit in New Delhi? Well, I don't know what is the, the litigation that may happen between China and India. I don't know what are their conflicts. If I was the president of China, I would have come to the G20 meeting. Why? Why so? Because it's very important for us to participate in these fora because we need to greet people, shake hands, look in the eye of the people, to have bilateral meetings and have direct conversations and discuss the interests of your country. Now, look, even China uh, now, the way it's, it is, it's still a country by the strength of its economy. It's the balance of the world. Brazil is not part of those that advocate a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. No, we want that the economy to be developed, that all the countries should go, create jobs. We don't want any kind of litigation or conflict. We have to understand that society needs, civil society needs harmony, hope, peace. That, that's what we need. We have to talk about peace and love and start, uh, instead of talking about hate, divergence, we have to talk about of something called solidarity. And this is what we're lacking now on this heart, heart in politics every day. So that's why we have these extreme far-right groups in many parts of the world. So I regret that President Xi Jinping didn't come. I don't know what problem, what was the reason, but I just was with him at the BRICS summit meeting in South Africa. And it was very important in his participation in that summit meeting. So I'm very happy with China's growth too. And I see I'm very happy with the growth of any country in the world. Now, what is truly important is not only to grow, what is important is that this growth should be distributed for the people. Because if the growth is not distributed to the people, it's concentrated in the pockets of someone, of some people. So it's necessary that this growth should be distributed so that civil society should participate in the results of that growth that it helped to produce. This is the way that democracy works. 
Everybody wants to eat. Everybody wants to get dressed. Everybody wants to work. Everybody wants to have access to pleasure, to leisure. Everybody wants to travel. And so we're the ones that are responsible to work for, to make that happen. That's the only reason for which I want to be a president. Is to prove that we can improve the lives of the poor people. So, look, in Brazil, I am the only president that don't, didn't have a, a, a university degree. I only have the elementary school degree. Nevertheless, I am the president that most that built most universities in the history, federal institutes of education, vocational training schools, and it was during my government that we put in more students in the university. And so, this is just to prove that when we want, we can do it. Sem dúvida. The president doesn't have to know about everything, but when he's in question, has a doubt, he consults and the organizations of civil society. There's a lot of people that have a lot of wisdom, that have expertise, that want to speak out. And so the government, I don't know if you perceive that all of us, we have one mouth to speak and two ears to listen. So it's necessary for us to have more capability to listen and not only speak and maybe put in practice things that the civil society is speaking up to us. When we listen to civil society, we don't make mistakes. That's a very uh, interesting message. Um, we, have, we should have the ability to listen more and speak less, you're saying. Uh, I wonder if that is a message to some leaders as well, to some countries. The U.S. is called China a spoiler. Do you agree with that term? Well, I believe I don't see very well uh, this fight between the U.S. and China. I don't think it's a good thing because it seems that this is an attempt to create a new Cold War. The experience of Cold War was not good for humanity. It was not good for the countries, the Cold War period. And so it, I believe that we won't have another atomic bomb, another nuclear war, but we won't have the Cold War either. Humanity needs peace. A country can only grow if it has peace, if it has investments. They can build new highways, new railroads, new buildings, new schools, new universities. But when, when it's in war, you don't build anything, you just destroy. And what you did at the cost, at the expense of the sacrifice of millions of people is destroyed by a bomb. And then you have to rebuild again. And so I would enjoy that the U.S. and China should also do well and, 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 be, and the world should stay calm with tranquility. Everybody should work not only to build peace, but also to build the growth and the economic uh, sustainable development. Now that this issue is coming of wind power and solar power are coming strongly now and that people are thinking to build a new energy matrix with 
uh, climate change so that we can take care of the planet because we're to avoid the greenhouse gas emissions and a low carbon agriculture. We have to be united to do all that. We have to be united. We live in this under the same house. India lives in a house. I live in another house. Biden lives in another house. Xi Jinping lives in another house. But it's the same house. It's the same world. There's no way for you to ex by escape. If this boat goes down, shrinks, uh, uh, everybody will go down. And so, uh, for God's sake, let's stop with the divergence and let's seek for consensus. Let's stop thinking about war and think about peace. Let's stop conveying hatred and convey love. And let's take care of the poor people, the working class, the working people, the ones that did not have an opportunity in their life because the government, the state did not allow them to have an opportunity. Because no one is poor because they want to be poor. No one makes an option to be poor. No one is born and says, I want to be poor when I grow up. No, everybody wants to live well. Everybody wants to have a good job. Everybody wants to study. And it's the state, the government is the one that has to guarantee to make that happen for the people. This is what I believe in. This is what guides my life, and this is what I've done under two terms in my previous terms in Brazil, the president. This is what I'm doing the third term in as president. My preach, my political preaching is for peace, for love, for development, and for the distribution of the benefits for all the population. Mr. President, can there be peace when... Uh one player or one member of the house that you mentioned does not respect the territorial integrity of others. You mentioned balance of power. That's a term that you also used uh, in your uh, visit to China earlier this year, which was a high-profile visit. Uh, China is increasingly seen as an expansionist power in the region, and it has uh, territorial disputes with practically all its neighbors. In your private conversations with the leadership, do you impress upon them the need to uphold a rules-based order. Let me say something to you. Brazil has borderline with all South American countries. We have almost 17 million square kilometers of borderline, and we have no conflict, no litigation with any country, and we don't want to have such conflict or litigation. We believe that the United Nations does not represent any more for which it was created for. So that's why that we are advocating a change in the membership of the UN Security Council, that more countries should participate in the UN Security Council. India should participate, Germany should participate, Brazil should participate, Japan should participate, Mexico should participate, Argentina or either Egypt or Nigeria or South Africa, because the UN, the UN Security Council doesn't represent the political geography of today, but only of 1945, and we have a UN Security Council that are the six permanent members that are, there's the ones that have atomic bombs, they're the ones that sell weapons, there's the countries that go to war without consulting anybody. It is true that Russia invaded Ukraine without consulting anyone, and the U.S. invaded Iraq without consulting anybody, England and France invaded Libya without consulting previously anyone. 
and we believe that it's possible to respect the fundamental uh, principle of the United Nations. Brazil is 100% against the invasion of territorial integrity of any other country. Brazil is against that. Against Russia, against China, the U.S., Brazil will be against any country that puts in practice in territorial invasion of another country. Very good to hear that. Uh, you mentioned Russia. The Russian president is not here. He did not even go for the BRICS summit. Uh, next year, Brazil will be hosting the G20. Would you uh, like to welcome President Putin to Brazil for the G20? He will be invited because next year we will have the BRICS being hosted by Russia. Before the G20 in Brazil, we'll have the BRICS meeting in Russia, and I will attend the BRICS meeting in Russia next year. I believe that the Prime Minister Modi will also go to Russia, and I think that Xi Jinping will go. South Africa will attend, and Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, Egypt. Everybody's going to attend the BRICS meeting, and then I hope that they also come to Brazil's G20 meeting. Brazil, they will feel a peace environment in Brazil. So they're going to feel that in Brazil, we enjoy music, we enjoy carnival, we enjoy soccer, but we enjoy peace. And we like to treat well people. So I believe that Putin can go easily to Brazil. He are signatories to the Rome Statute, though, and there's an arrest warrant against him. Well, what I can say to you is that if I'm president of Brazil, if he comes to Brazil, there's no way that he'll be arrested. No, he will not be arrested. No one is going to uh, lack of respect of Brazil. If you will arrest someone in Brazil without the authorization of the government, you will not respect Brazil. People have to take seriously the country of Brazil and its independence. Of course. Uh, your government refused to supply weapons to Ukraine, uh, and in the past you have criticized Western uh, military aid to Ukraine, saying that this has prolonged the conflict. Would you say that the West, with its continuous military aid packages, is part of the problem in this war? Let me tell you a short story. In 2022, was spent two trillion. $224 billion in weapons, in arms. If this money had been spent in education, fighting hunger, investment in social inclusion, certainly the world would be much better than with the war in Ukraine. So, it's for, only for us to use the good sense of the people, the common sense of people. If you have awareness before you go to war, if you have your senses, use all the conversation mechanisms or facilities that may exist. Have a meeting, two meetings, three, ten meetings, whatever. The only thing that you can't do is go to war. When the U.S. went to war against Iraq, I was talking with President Bush in those days. On December the 10th of 2002, I was not president, but I was president-elect. And I told President Bush, President, 
Bush, Iraq, they don't carry chemical weapons. The general director of the UN Agency for Chemical Weapons was the Brazilian ambassador. And he said, there's no chemical weapons in Iraq. And then the lie was told by the American government and by the Iraqi government that said they did carry those weapons. Iraq was lying because they wanted to sell a force that they didn't have. And the U.S., was stubborn and, and went to war with Iraq. Until today, the chemical weapons were not found in Iraq. The chemical, the chemical weapon had led to the murder of Saddam Hussein. Uh, so, so you you need another a lot of wisdom from the human being. War is not of our interest of the human beings. And then a, another severe thing that is happening are the blockades, the sanctions. For example, the blockade against Cuba, Cuba is 60 years already. The embargo against Cuba has, and the embargo against Venezuela, the embargo against Iran, an embargo is a weapon that is worse than a bomb. Because at war, you have soldiers fighting soldiers, but in, a, in an embargo, you victimize children, women, kids uh, that do not have nothing to do with the war. So we rulers, we need to change our behavior. I can't imagine that Cuba has a blockade, an embargo for 60 years long, and that people don't manage to survive well in the way they want to live. So I believe that the first opportunity I had with President Biden, I'm going to say to President Biden that it's necessary to stop, uh, to penalize Cuba. Cuba is not a country that has terrorists. I've been going to Cuba for more than 30 years. I've never seen any uh, action of the government to give incentives to the terrorists. They have to take out this charge against Cuba that it's a terrorist uh, harboring country and get rid of the embargo to help them survive. There's no explanation. I didn't agree to the embargo when I was 50 years old. Today I have 77 years of age. And it's been all, for 27 years, I don't understand why the embargo continues against Cuba, because there's no mass weapon of destruction in Cuba. So it's necessary to find other ways to do politics in the world. The planet is becoming overcrowded, and soon we will be 9 billion people. And the raw material is the same. The geographic space is the same. And so, we'll have to learn to live with peace. We're going to have to learn in harmony. Otherwise, we will destroy ourselves. And the human being, I should say, is the only animal on the planet Earth that do things to cause damage to themselves. And so... We need a, a civilizatory process to reintroduce civilization so that humanity could live in peace, in harmony, and with tranquility. That's what we need. This is what I wish for the world. This is what I wish for my country. And this is what I wish for the people that participate in the multilateral institutions. The IMF has to help people. It cannot penalize people. 
The World Bank has to have people and not penalize people. The poor countries. Let me give you another example. The African continent has a debt of $800 billion. You can't pay back that debt. It's unpayable. So it's necessary for us to find a way to transform this African debt in investments for infrastructure where the countries could uh, be lifted from poverty and grow and have the prospect of participating in the wealth of the world, having a share of the wealth of the world. It's not difficult. It's only for us to think a little bit with our heart and not only with reason. You've, you've spoken about, uh, uh, you know, you call them the blue-eyed bankers, the IMF and the World Bank and their policies, and you're saying the sanctions are, are not the way to deal with the situation. Do you think that the current uh, approach is going to uh, precipitate uh, an economic downturn? All of us, we have to take responsibility. Uh, Brazil, when I was there, after almost four years of a disaster, where Brazil was governed by a fascist that was only preaching hatred, and he would tell 11 lies per day. And I think that he has liability for half of the deaths that we had due to COVID-19 in Brazil because he denied the vaccines. He said that he didn't believe in the COVID and that if someone took a vaccine, it would become a crocodile. He would give recipes, uh, prescriptions for medicine that had nothing to do with the COVID-19. So the world needs to get rid of these people. And the people need to have, as a rule, people that have sensitivity, people that believe in the human being, that are humanists people that do not want the evil for anybody. And I'm not obliged to like anyone or someone. No one is obliged to like me. But what I want is that people should respect me as I am and I should respect the people as they are. And that's what I want. Each one should have the religion that they want. Each one should be the fan of any sport team that they want, vote for whoever they want to, when the electoral process is over, we have to rule for all, govern to, for all. You have to govern for the rich and the poor. Now, you have to do what my mother used to do. My mother, my mother does not uh, let one ch child who eat more and earn more than the other. So in, in government, you have to treat everyone with equal conditions with the gains to the poor. Well, the poorest ones are the ones, the most people that are in want, that need more caress, more want, that need additional aid. That's how I think that the rulers should govern their countries. Coming back to Ukraine, do you think now is the time for a negotiated settlement? And uh, would you like to play mediator between uh, President Zelensky and Putin? No, I believe that the, oh, the time has passed that the, I believe the two presidents still think they're go each one is going to win the war. So when, when, when some side, side thinks that they're going to win, they don't want to negotiate it. And I regret all the deaths that you com can't come back for life. No one will give back their lives that were lost. I regret deeply almost 8 million people that 
or shift or had to move outside Ukraine that fled and trying to live in other countries. I regret the destruction of the material goods that people themselves built. And so I believe that every day, all the time, is peacetime. And no time is wartime. No. If it's necessary, if I'm invited, if I'm called, if I have a contribution to give, I would enjoy to participate together with India, together with China, together with other countries. But it is important that the U.S. and the European Union should also be, should have the willingness to help us to build peace. I understand the speeches of each one from Europe, because Europe is very close to the war, and I can understand their speeches. And I understand the U.S. too, that it seems they have, they have a lot of against Russia. I have nothing against anybody. I want to do well with the U.S. I want to be, do well with the Russia, and I want to do well with India, and I want to do well with China, and I want to do well with my consciousness and with God. Of course. Um, you attended the BRICS summit last month and we saw an expansion of the BRICS. There was a report or many reports that said that China wants to create an anti-Western bloc uh, and, and uh, that's the direction that it was taking. Uh, I, I understand that some countries were not on board with that idea. You endorsed the idea of a BRICS common currency to, to uh, take on or to replace the U.S. dollar. Are you happy with the direction that this, uh, this grouping is taking? Well, well, first of all, I did not endorse of a common currency. Brazil proposed the idea for a long time for a need of the countries to build a currency so that they don't need the dollar. I can negotiate with India with my own currency and India with their currency. The same thing, my currency with the China's their own currency. The Europeans created the euro. Why can't we create a new currency for trade? And, but we'll keep our own national currencies. What we did was to allow that the finance ministers of the BRICS countries have one year to find a solution for this new currency. And we do not want to confront anybody with this idea. We don't want to go against the G7, because I'm also a guest at the G7. I participate in the G20, in the BRICS meetings. I participate in the IPSA which is a group India, Brazil, and South Africa forum that China does not participate in the IPSA. And so we have to have the awareness that no one wants to create a block against another block. What we want is to be treated with respect and under equal terms. This is what we want, only that. And India has the right to be not only a big country in terms of population, but a great country in terms of the quality of lives of their people, of its people. Brazil, too, has that right. China, too. The U.S., too. All of us dream that our people will reach the welfare state that Europe has achieved. We dream of the welfare state. And we know for that, this is a very difficult task to reach that welfare state because we have to find more ores, more richness in, the, in nature. And I don't know if nature has all that wealth for us to find. We cannot live in a world possibly 
where 2% of humanity has much more wealth than 50% of the poor. I know you have to go for dinner, but I want to ask you two very quick questions. One, uh, at the BRICS summit, there was a picture of you along with the Indian Prime Minister that went viral. You were looking at a newspaper, and we were all very curious to know what was the conversation that you were having at that time. I was congratulating the Prime Minister Modi for the conquest of reaching the space with a rocket, cheap rockets, and to manage to reach a place where four days before that the Russians failed to reach the moon. So I think it was an extraordinary achievement with science and technology for India. So I was congratulating the Prime Minister, and he was very proud of the achievement. And my final question, uh, a lot of people have seen you making speeches at global forums. We've heard about your views on politics, your, your views on climate change, economy, but not many people know that you also watch movies from India. Do you want to tell our audience about the movie that you liked? Uh, yes. Uh, the last film that I watched from India is a film called Revolt, Rebellion and Revolution. R, R, R. It's a three-hour feature film, and it has very funny scenes, very beautiful dance on the, in the film, and there is a, a critique, a deep critique to the British control over India and conquering India. Uh, sincerely, I believe that this film should have been a box office here in India, and I believe that it should be making success around the world, because everybody that talked to me, the first thing that I say is, have you watched the 3R film? Revolt, Rebellion, and Revolution. And so many times we see that the Indian film, and people don't even know that India has a good movies, a good movie industry. Many times people are not aware of that movie industry, that they have good films from India. So since I enjoyed very much this film from India, the political side, I enjoyed also the dance, the joy that was shown in the film, even when the critique is done in a very uh, humor. The critique is perfect, even using humor. So I congratulate the to the directors of this film, to the artists, uh, because it enchanted me. Well, India has a fantastic film industry, and, and thank you to you, I'm sure. Uh, the audience across the world will also know about it a little more. Thank you, Mr. President, for your time and for your thoughts and for answering all the questions that we put to you. Thank you, Pauki. Thank you very much. And I hope that the people from India that will watch your show, forgive me, for speaking too much. That was an extended interview with Brazilian President Lula da Silva at the sidelines of the G20 summit, which just recently concluded in New Delhi, India. Prior to the interview with Lula da Silva, there was also an extensive interview with South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandora. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, September 10th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for today's Pan-African Journal. <laughs> Thank you. 
The inaugural Africa Climate Summit ended in Nairobi with an urgent call on the global community to speed up climate action. The gathering that brought together several African leaders, global climate ambassadors and representatives from many sectors culminated in the adoption of the Nairobi Declaration, which Africa will take to COP28 in Dubai as its common position. This week on the program, we examine the outcomes of the first ever truly African climate gathering on the continent by asking, is Africa's climate agenda on track or is it stuck in a rut? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. delve deeper into the outcomes of the summit and their implications for Africa, I'm joined by Dr. Mahmoud Mohidin, UN Climate Change High-Level Champion for Egypt and UN Special Envoy on Financing 2030. Dr. Mohidin, thank you very much for uh, joining us here. Thank now, you. the Africa's Climate Summit has just ended here in Nairobi. First off, it, it had a declaration. What, in your view, were the outcomes of the summit? I think uh, the first thing to be recognized is the um, ability of Kenya to host such an important uh, summit and to keep um, uh, the momentum on matters related to climate and development, uh, including aspects related to finance of development and green growth in such a tough global political um, environment. So the very convening of the event and the um, um, excellent attendance by uh, leaders, um, uh, heads of government, private sector and civil society in itself was a success. Then on the substance, as are reflected in some aspects of the declaration, um, I think matters related to uh, priorities of Africa have been uh, reflected um, as being emphasized in the declaration and in the statements by heads of state that issues related to uh, finance, technology, and capacity development need to uh, be taken more seriously, um, especially through partnerships. Um, what I liked as well is this kind of, um, of unique and practical way of linking global efforts to regional cooperation and uh, checking from the very beginning the impact on uh, local uh, communities. Um, I didn't miss uh, a day without having this kind of serious discussion, what would be the impact of all of these discussions at the grassroots, at a typical household, in, um, in a poor area, or in middle class areas in, uh, in Africa. And this issue of social impact, I think, was a plus in the discussions. Two issues that actually were very much in focus as well, uh, together with what you just talked about, climate financing, and green growth. But if we go look back at the whole question of climate finance, you yeah. know, because 12 years um, ago, you know, th there was a pledge by richer countries to give the poorer countries about $100 billion. But, you know, where are we with that progress? Well, two things. First, $100 billion, very important as a token of trust. In terms of significance, perhaps, as you said, more than a decade ago, this amount of money was significant. But if everybody is saying now that the gaps are in the trillions, so when you consider the 100 billion, 
even if they are being paid in full, which has never been the case so far, even if they are going to be leveraged, this is not going to be um, uh, adequate. So the 100 billion is being taken uh, seriously into discussion from two aspects. First, it's an issue of commitment and political trust. Second, in areas related to leveraging. And I would say third, because everybody is going to be now considering what will be the new figure of the climate finance uh, beyond 2025 when this new figure is going to be discussed and definitely it will be much more than the 100 billion. I know that there is a report being now finalized on the commitments um, uh, by the advanced economies, um, but I, tell, I can tell you from now there will be a, a very huge dispute um, um, about the findings of this uh, report as it happened in the previous reports because the methodology being adopted is basically allowing everything that is being provided uh, from the north to the global south as part of the 100 billion. Uh, loans, grants, uh, investments, um, uh, even high cost kind of funding are being considered. And there are issues related to um, um, uh, um, uh, double counting, if not multiple counting. That's why you see um, entities like Oxfam um, uh, is challenging these reports. But, but actually, what I like now about the uh, discussion of the climate finance, uh, finance is going beyond the 100 billion, linking the work to development finance, trying to get as well all sources of finance, external and domestic, public and private, and making a focus on innovative finance or what's called uh, finnovation. So there were some new pledges that were made during the Africa Climate Summit, right? About $25 billion. Is that a new line of financing? Well, part of that is part of the old uh, commitment. And part is like what we uh, have seen, for instance, from the, uh, the pledge and the promise coming from uh, the UE, uh, $3.5 This is not part of the $100 billion. So this is additional finance. And what I like about uh, the, uh, uh, that offer is coming with an interesting mix um, uh, because Africa doesn't need more debt. As you know, many countries now in Africa are facing a variety of challenges, even crises when it comes to debt. What we need is one of two things or both. More private equity participation and more concessional um, uh, uh, long-term finance. Commercial debt is not really uh, a good recommendation. I've seen in some a discussion that uh, some advanced economies recommended that we can go on uh, green bonds and blue bonds. This is fine as far as you can get them in long term and with great deal of support for the cost of funding, not to be um, uh, on double digits as we see today, but uh, we need really to, uh, to have more support for issuance to be more long term and more concessional. And it is not fair to ask Africans, especially when it comes to funding um, uh, adaptation um, uh, to, to climate uh, change to be funded by, um, uh, by commercial terms, um, um, including actually the uh, uh, high risk associated with the um, uh, commercial borrowing because of exchange rates. So Africa is now gearing up for COP28, Absolutely. but in COP27, um, Africa was looking for, I mean, their focus on, on a just energy a transition. You know, as we gear up to COP28, where are we with the just energy uh, transition? I think the discussion has been very much uh, advanced, but uh, the implementation 
is leaving a lot to be desired. So in terms of discussion, I would say that now people, you, you may remember the big announcement during uh, Glasgow about uh, funding uh, through JP uh, $8.5 billion uh, plus to South Africa, phasing out from coal, phasing in renewables, and checking the impact on society. I think now the discussion got more sophisticated by reversing that order, checking what would be relevant and what would be the impact first on society, on uh, neighborhoods, on, on the labor market, then availing the finance for the alternatives. And then you can consider the, um, and practically and fast, the phasing out. But you tell me, well, I'm phasing out this without really getting uh, the phased in alternative, that's, that's not really uh, uh, practical. On elements of ju just energy uh, transition, I was happy to be the uh, moderator of the session that took place during COP27 uh, between the President of the European Council and the President on, of, of South Africa as co-chairs of this session, and issues related to um, 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 better identification of the requirements at the local level have been very well identified. You cannot just talk about these matters generically. And you cannot just move on and say, well, we'll compensate the victims. It, it doesn't really go this way. So I think in the design of project finance from the very beginning, this issue of the social impact and the socio-economic opportunities need really to be, uh, to be realized. Then the other thing as being emphasized almost by every head state that at their very big challenges, there are many opportunities, especially renewables. Um, on the Atlas of Wind, many African cities and, uh, and, and, and provinces have proven that they have the comparative advantage of, of hosting um, uh, big wind farms. Solar, uh, we are blessed with the sun and with the kind of circumstances that can really make solar energy feasible. So I come back to my first question now where yeah. I ask you about the outcome. Yes. Now I want to ask you about, in your view, what exactly did the Africa Climate Summit achieve? Well, I think if we go back to what we said at the beginning of this year, it's a year of challenges because the impact of COVID, we're talking about climate as an urgent matter, but we are overwhelmed by food, energy, and debt challenges and crises. So to have a summit that is trying to make climate and climate finance part of the solution, to these overwhelming challenges and crises on debt, food, and energy, that was a plus. Second, it's taking the issue of incremental support of the climate agenda and its dynamics from the, uh, the Paris summit a uh, few weeks ago. Um, and I think it achieved more differently for Africa, I would say. Then, this is coming days before three summits uh, uh, in the UN um, discuss, discussing sustainable development goals, their progress on the halfway towards 2030, finance for development, and the Climate Ambition Summit. And many of those who are coming here as, as if they are uh, getting their priorities reorganized from a regional perspective to go with one voice, one African voice to, uh, to the UN. And then everybody, of course, is preparing for the COP28, which this year and this is basically through you to, to those from government or private sector to NGOs, as we're uh, discussing, for instance, with the Marrakesh partners just now, myself and my colleague, Razan al-Mubarak, please go there with prepared asks and offers. This is not the time for 
genetic uh, perspective. This is the time for specific, and as you try to, uh, to do as well, if you can attach your offer or your ask to a dollar sign, that would be even more appreciated to get an adequate answer, no or yes, for these offers and asks. And what will be Africa's common position this time in COP28? Well, I think linking climate priorities to sustainable development and the, the focus on that impact at the local and communities level had uh, been an area of emphasis that climate um, finances, development finance, there is no dichotomy whatsoever between climate and development, and we need to, really to have inclusive green growth with opportunities for job creation and opportunities for sustainable development while we are not compromising the targets on um, uh, net zero and, and the climate agenda at large. This has basically have been the common thread on many of the, uh, of the leaders' statements and have been reflected in different ways in the declaration, I would say. Dr. Mohidin, thank you very much for that. On that note, let's take a short break. When we come back, we will have more from this historic gathering by looking at what lies ahead for Africa in the fight against climate change. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue our conversation. Joining us now is our panel of experts, Fadel Kaboub, President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, and Suleiman Babamanu, Nigerian Program Director at RMI. Uh, both of you, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Professor Kaboub, let me start off with you because I want to start by taking stock of the just-concluded Africa Climate Summit. First of all, what exactly did it achieve? Well, in, in two words, it's, it's been a missed opportunity. This is the first Africa Climate Summit organized by the African Union on African soil. And we expected, I expected as an African economist, our leaders to deliver a bold, transformative, coherent, comprehensive vision on climate and development. And what we ended up with are vague statements repeating statements that we've seen in other declarations and, and, and statements that didn't really meet the expectations of civil society of, of the African people. And, and when I put the official declaration side by side by the people's declaration from civil society, you can see a huge gap in ambitions and focus. Uh, and that's, that's unfortunate because we wanted to invite the world to come to Nairobi to witness our ambition, our bold vision, not to come veto our ambition and, and, and vision. What would that vision though have entailed? Well, a vision of transformation that says two things. Number one, climate action is development policy. It's not two competing things. Number two, stating the facts, which is historic polluters owe us climate reparations, owe us a climate debt. Mm -hmm. And that reparation is not just transfer of financial resources. Yes, it involves cash transfer to repair the damage, but also it involves transfer of technology. It involves addressing the structural traps that have been established for this continent since the colonial and post-colonial times, 
And those are three major structural traps that we still struggle with today. Number one, food deficits. We used to be the breadbasket of the world, and now we import 85% of our food. Not by accident, by design. Number two, energy deficits. Even for a country like Nigeria, a big exporter of fossil fuels, mm -hmm. Nigeria today imports 100% of its gasoline, not by accident, by design. So repairing these structures. And number three, this is the most important one, right. is the industrialization deficit that we have, whereby we've been assigned the role of either exporting raw materials with no value added or assembly line manufacturing. So we export low value added content, we import high value added content, we're constantly in a trap no matter how much you double, triple, quadruple right. your, your exports, you're always digging yourself deeper. So repairing the economic damage involves coincidentally climate solutions because this means investing in food sovereignty and agroecology which is a climate solution and a development solution. Right. Investing in renewable energy uh, infrastructure and that's a climate solution and a development in, uh, uh, solution and investing in high value added manufacturing using our strategic minerals to deploy clean energy, clean cooking technology on this continent. That's a solution for climate, that's a solution for development. So let me bring in uh, Suleiman here. Suleiman, I want to get uh, your view here. What is Africa's agenda here? To a certain extent, I, I kind of agree that, you know, uh, this would have been uh, a huge, this is a huge opportunity for Africa to really take a stand. Um, and, but to a certain extent, I also um, think that for the first time this summit is holding in Africa, we have seen um, African leaders actually taking uh, a united stand in terms of what they want to achieve uh, all together um, in, in, the, in the conversation around climate change. Now, when you look at that, Africa, this is a shift from, you know, Africa being considered as a victim of, of, of climate change because of the amount of emissions it is, uh, it is responsible for compared to, you know, the developed countries, which mm -hmm. is around between 3 to 4 percent. So there's a shift from that being a victim to uh, taking also a lead in um, being a solution. So that, that I think is a huge step. And maybe lastly is on around the, 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 the kind of, you know, uh, mandatory carbon tax, taxes on polluters because there should be responsibility in, you know, uh, people who, uh, countries that are polluting uh, so most to, to be responsible for, so for Sul financing. Suleiman, I want to come uh, back to you here with that whole concept of exactly how much money is needed or how much money has been pledged. It's not the first time that... Um, Africa or the Global South has heard about money being pledged by the, the richer countries. And, and, you know, if climate financing is to be achieved, if the energy transition is to be achieved, you know, they're talking about, I, I don't know, billions of dollars that is required uh, to do this for Africa. Is that money actually available considering the $100 billion that was pledged by richer countries for adaptation and mitigation is yet to be realized? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that since, you know, when the declaration was made, I believe in COP19, um, up to now we, we're yet to, to, to be able to um, see the actualization of the, of the $100 billion that's been committed. And it still remains a responsibility of developed countries to, you know, um, ensure that, uh, that that financing is made available for mm -hmm. projects and for, 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 you know, climate change related uh, issues. 
but when you look at also you know what needs there are lots that needs to be done um, for, for countries to be able to access this financing and these financing must be uh, made available in a way that becomes um, attractive and not become additional burden to African countries especially because of you know the amount of debt that, that African countries are already, right. you know, um, you know, in right now. So, and that is one of what this summit has, has been also been 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 working on in terms of really looking at restructuring the financing to the way that it is able to actually um, get to the to the right um, to make the right impact. Um, access to this funding also requires that you have, you know been able to prepare a pipeline right. uh, of projects that would be able to attract this financing, but it must also, you know, have a blend of, you know, concessional financing and grants and, you know, a, a, a structure that typical commercial capital will not be able to uh, necessarily finance because of the nature of these projects. So um, but I think, you know, a lot needs to be done by, by developed countries to um, actualize this commitment. So Professor Kabo, we heard a lot about um, you know some pledges of up to 25 billion dollars. We also heard about um, you know like the UAE for instance uh, pledged about 4.5 billion towards Africa's renewables. But when we talk about uh, the barriers that mm -hmm. have traditionally um, you know disadvantaged the continent, what are these barriers that uh, have not enabled the continent to access uh, the funding? Well, this is not the first time we hear pledges in, in the millions and, and billions, and, and 25 billion is still too little and, and too late. But also the devil's in the detail when it comes to the structure of this financing, the conditionalities that come with this financing. I'll give you one example. Um, one of the largest solar farms on this continent in Egypt was funded through uh, a loan mm -hmm. by European, uh, a European bank to 12 European companies to build this solar farm and then to produce clean electricity to sell to Egyptian consumers at a premium and then to generate revenues and profits and to repatriate them back to Europe at a fixed exchange rate. No matter what happens in the Egyptian economy, they're guaranteed a fixed exchange rate in U.S. dollars. So Egyptian consumers are practically importing clean electricity from European companies that produce the electricity on their own soil. So if we're talking about climate finance mm -hmm. of this kind, this is perpetuating the neo-colonial and colonial extraction of African resources, mm -hmm. and it's not going to get us very far. So if we're talking about climate finance, like the 100 billion promised not delivered, 80% mm -hmm. of it was delivered in the form of loans that are entrapping our continent in the same structure. Even if we say, okay, we're going to give you solar panels for free to build the farms. Right. That's still technological dependence because after 25 years you have to buy them. You have to borrow money and buy them again. So we're talking about transformation and reparations in the form of transfer of technology, industrialization on this continent using our resources. Right. And then finally, when we talk about the global financial architecture that you know, underpins this entire system, it was created in 1944 when the entire continent with the exception of a few countries, were colonized. Right. So it's a global financial architecture that was not designed by us or for us, and it can't be the architecture that will save us today. So we have to not only you know, fight and, and demand, not charity, but reparations for, for the damage that was done to our economies, to our ecosystem, uh, but also make sure that we redesign a global financial architecture that's balanced. Uh, Suleiman, do you see the continent achieving that 100% green growth by 
2030, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very ambitious target, right? Um, and, I mean, for us at RMI, we always believe that, you know, countries, um, you know, states and local governments, for example, have the right to, you know, utilize the, the, the resources to be able to achieve economic development. However, what is also very important, what is key, is using data-driven techno-economic analysis to prove that, you know, especially for countries that abundance of, of, of oil and gas, that it can actually be, um, you know, a, a cheaper alternative to, to, to utilize green, um, green, you know, uh, technologies. However, you know, there are a lot of, you know, when we talk about the numbers in terms of access gaps, you know, it is not going to be immediately addressed using decentralized solar solutions, for example. So, you know, other resources must, must be utilized to, mm -hmm. to be able to address those gaps. So it is an ambitious plan. It is achievable. However, you know, with all the, you know, uh, breaking in terms of commitments and, you know, a huge gap that we have in terms of access and clean cooking, one gets really, really worried that, you know, for countries that have not been able to, you know, generate up to 10, well, even 500 megawatts or one gigawatt of clean electricity, mm -hmm. uh, targeting 300 gigawatts of electricity over the next 10 years. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it calls for a lot of, you know, uh, collaboration with, with, with governments and financial institutions to be able to achieve that. All right. So I want to get your final thoughts here. And Professor Kabu, let me start off with you because this was a precursor to uh, Africa's position at COP28. What should Africa be taking to COP28? Well, unfortunately, I don't really see this as a, as a common, united, concrete position. If anything, maybe Africa had a more of a clearer common position last year at COP27. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do in the next couple of months working through the African Union, through the African group of negotiators mm -hmm. who are our representatives and experts going to, to COP to, to better shape and formulate uh, a common African position and a set of demands because this loss and damage fund that was created last year that is empty, that the agenda for this year is to make sure that it's fully funded at the scale necessary for the transformation necessary for Africa and the Global South. But what we've heard in the last few weeks from uh, John Kerry in mm -hmm. the United States is that the United States will not pay reparations for climate, which means will not deliver anything to the climate fund. That's what's implied. And he was dispatched to Nairobi to deliver uh, peanuts, $25 million, with an M, not with a B. And, and even that is questionable. Is it actually 25 or is it just five on top of the 20 promised a while ago? We have to be very clear on our demands and united mm -hmm. and not shy away from, from calling out historic polluters when they don't deliver and expect them to set the agenda for COP28 and beyond. All right. Uh, Suleiman, your thoughts. What should Africa take to COP28? Yes, I, I agree with Professor. Um, I think it has to be a very clear, consistent message, right? Um, we run the risk of, you know, losing this momentum, that the little momentum that we have right now if countries continue to default on their responsibilities. And it only gets to a stage where, you know, you, you, you begin to see, you know, countries pulling out of, 
you know, any kind of, you know, negotiations or uh, commitments. Um, and what is also very, very important is these financing are also based on our terms, right, and not subjecting us to additional, you know, um, debt kind of, uh, you know, challenges that would end up, you know, being uh, a problem rather than a solution to, to the already, you know, bad situation. All right, gentlemen, thank you both so very much for that analysis of the African Climate Summit. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, uh, Professor Fadel Kaboub, President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, Suleiman Babamanu, Nigerian Program Director at RMI, and Dr. Mahamoud Mohideen, UN Climate Change High-Level Champion for Egypt and UN Special Envoy on Financing 2030. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, bye-bye. That was a discussion on the recently held Africa Climate Summit in Nairobi, Kenya. We'll take a break and we'll be back with our concluding remarks for uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Sunday, September 10th, 2023. We'll be right back. You gave me
Candy Staten uh, with the track entitled Sweet Feeling. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, September 10th, 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you would like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of legendary trumpeter, jazz trumpeter, Book a Little, uh, from the album entitled Out Front. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Thank <laughs> you.